Hello, and welcome to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas. And each week, I'm going to watch one of the 95 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. I follow the same template every week. So if you're new to the podcast, here's how it works. I tell you the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it and what's it all about. And of course, where you can stream it if you want to watch it. I also answer these three questions. Does it stand the test of time? Is it Oscar worthy? And should you watch it? Or is this just another cruel joke someone's played on us? Just as a friendly warning, I like to give my honest assessment of these movies. And sometimes I go off on little tangents about current events. It's just what I do. I like to rant about the things that irritate me. And I always seem to mix it with a heaping dose of adult language. It's just me up in here fussing and cussing. So please be sure you listen with caution. Before we begin, I'd like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar-related. So with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is The King's Speech. It was released September 6th of 2010. It's directed by Tom Hooper. It stars Colin Firth, Jeffrey Rush, Helena Bonham Carter, Guy Pearce, and Eve Best. It was nominated for a total of 12 Oscars, and it won four of them. It won for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Original Screenplay. If you want to watch it, it can be found on Peacock if you have a subscription, or you can pay a few dollars and watch it on Vudu, Amazon Prime Video, and Apple TV. So what is it about? Well, before I begin, I have to admit that I wanted to review this movie this week for a very specific reason. Just yesterday, the United Kingdom held a coronation for the first king they've had in 70 years. Most of us have spent our entire lives having Queen Elizabeth II on the throne. And you may not know much about her father, who was the last king to rule. Luckily, this movie is all about him. We start in 1925 during the reign of King George V. He has two sons, the proverbial heir and a spare. The younger of them is named Albert, or Bertie, to his family and friends. He is played by Colin Firth. In case you don't know anything about how the monarchy titles work, the eldest son of the king or queen is always called the Prince of Wales, and the second son is typically the Duke of York. There are some exceptions, like Prince Harry, but I won't go into that. As the Duke of York, Bertie is mostly expected to do some secondary royal activities, hosting exhibitions, attending charity events, ribbon-cutting ceremonies, you know, those types of things. It's difficult for Bertie to be front and center because he suffers from a debilitating stutter. We see this at the very beginning of the movie when he's asked to give a public speech on his father's behalf, and he just simply can't get the words out. His wife, Elizabeth, played by Helena Bonham Carter, remains very supportive as he works with a number of therapists in a futile attempt to correct his speech. 
we see that he's subjected to many different and creative methods, but none of them seem to work. Frustration grows. His father, the king, is expecting Bertie to step up and perform more royal duties, many of which will involve public speaking. Running out of options, Elizabeth pays a visit to Lionel Logue, a speech therapist with an impressive record of success. She visits him under a fake name, and he doesn't recognize her. Why would he? Back then, the royals weren't on TV every five minutes, so he has no idea who she is. He's really casual about the entire encounter. He's like, so just have your hubby pop on over. We'll have a chat. We'll get to know each other a bit. And she's like the ultimate royal snob. And she's like, oh, my dear man, you see, we do not pop over. We don't chat. And he will not come to you. You must come to us. That is my sucky English accent. And then just when it seems like Lionel's about to tell her to take a hike, she says, what if my husband were the Duke of York? And you can see Lionel's face and he's kind of like, oh, fuck. I may have misspoken just a teeny tiny bit. So Bertie reluctantly agrees to an initial session with Lionel. You'll notice during the introductions that Lionel insists on not being called doctor. And instead, he wants to be on a first name basis with his patients. Put a pin in that. It's going to be important later. Bertie struggles in the beginning. He's not accustomed to people being so frank with him and treating him as though he were common. He doesn't want to speak about anything personal. So it's difficult for Lionel to diagnose him. No one is born with a stammer. So there must be something that occurred as a child which caused him to have this impediment. Bertie believes it's permanent and he'll never be cured. Lionel has Bertie try something different. He plays Mozart and loudly and asks Bertie, wearing headphones to read into a microphone so that he can be recorded. This would cause Bertie's brain to focus on the music and not what's coming out of his mouth. This seems like a fruitless exercise and only stands to infuriate Bertie. He storms out insisting that he'll never work with Lionel again. In the winter of 1934, King George V has his Christmas speech broadcast by radio for the first time. He tells Bertie that this wonderful invention will be a significant addition to the role of the royal family because it allows them to enter the homes of all their subjects. His father tells him that once upon a time, a king just had to look good in uniform and do well riding a horse. But now it's important for them to essentially win the hearts and minds by being strong, stoic, and a reliable communicator. The king treats Bertie as if his stammer is all in his head. And if he just puts his mind to it, it will go away. And Bertie is aware that his older brother, David, has been neglectful of his royal duties. And so there's more heavy lifting that he's going to need to do to fill the gap. The king is pissed that David chooses to spend his time gallivanting about with married women rather than tending to his royal duties, especially at a time when Hitler and Stalin are both on the rise. And it's important that the English have strong leadership in the face of such adversity. I think he realizes he's not going to live forever. And he's dreadfully worried about what will happen to the family when he goes. This is the moment we all realize that it's going to end up falling on Bertie. And Bertie can't help but resent his brother for putting him in this position. That evening, Bertie listens to the recording that Lionel made for him and discovers that he read an entire page of Shakespeare's Hamlet without a single stammer. 
So it's decided Bertie will return to Lionel and continue his sessions. We watch the two men work together every day, doing everything from singing tongue twisters to doing calisthenics to help strengthen Bertie's flabby diaphragm. Bertie is a hard worker, and we start to see some success. He's having much more confidence when speaking in public and seems to be building a great deal of trust with Lionel. And then it happens. The king falls ill, and his days are numbered. So we finally get to meet David, played by Guy Pierce. He's a firstborn son, saddled with an incredible amount of family obligation. But instead, he insists on living like a spoiled carefree aristocrat, traveling the world, living a lavish lifestyle, and having a glass of expensive champagne in hand at all times. He's exactly the opposite of his mellow, boring, and somewhat stuck-up younger brother. We continue to hear all about Wallace, and that is Wallace Simpson, an American woman that David was in love with. She was married when they first met, but appears by this time she's about to get a divorce. We know from our history books that David was very much in love with her, but watching it play out in screen, well, it's hard to describe. It's almost like a creepy obsession. I personally find it unhealthy when two people are so codependent that they can't even spend a few hours apart without unraveling, but that's definitely David. It's a little icky if I'm being honest. The king's death has a horrible effect on David. I'm not sure how you spend the better part of your life preparing for a job and then be filled with utter dread the day you finally get it? He sobs uncontrollably, not because he's lost his father, but because now he's trapped. And what is he going to do about Wallace? King George V ruled for 25 years, but no matter how much planning went into the succession, it's about to be blown the fuck apart. Shortly after his father's death, Bertie pays Lionel a surprise visit. This is the first time we see him letting his guard down. Clearly, there is family drama, and he needs someone to talk to. He shares his feelings about his brother, seems that one time he really admired him, and now he just feels completely let down by him. We learn a lot about Bertie in this scene, a boy with a number of physical impairments and dreadful mistreatment by the nannies trusted to care for him. It's all very heartbreaking. In an earlier scene, we had seen Bertie lose his temper, quite quickly, in fact, So now we understand all the difficulty this man has to overcome. Next, we get to meet the famous Wallace Simpson. She's played by Eve Best, and you may recognize her from shows like Nurse Jackie and HBO's new Game of Thrones spinoff, House of Dragon. Bertie and Elizabeth go to pay their respects to the new king at his country estate and discover, well, a drunken party atmosphere. Bertie has encouraged Elizabeth, when they were in the car, to play nice. But that didn't happen. Clearly, David doesn't run his household with any formal etiquette, which insults the Duke and Duchess of York, who are accustomed to a very specific type of atmosphere. Elizabeth instead chats with Winston Churchill, and they try to work out what is so magical about Wallace Simpson. What hold does she have on the king? David is far more interested in pouring champagne than speaking about royal business, and it's clear Bertie is agitated. He's been trying to get on David's calendar, but has been getting blown off. There is a war in Europe, and Bertie is worried about the Russians. And he's heard that David has also laid off 80 people in his household so he could have more money to spend on expensive gifts for Wallace. David's like, dude, 
relax. I'm really good at this kinging thing. There's nothing for you to worry about. And he even kind of does this. And stop being so dramatic about Hitler. He's fine. He wouldn't hurt a flea. Oh, and he also breaks it to Bertie during this conversation that he and Wallace intend to marry. Now, this hits Bertie like a ton of bricks. He knows this means one of two things. Either David, as the king and the head of the church, is going to cause a constitutional crisis by marrying a twice-divorced woman, which, by the way, is forbidden while both of her ex-husbands are still alive, or David's going to do something worse. He's going to abdicate the throne and leave Bertie to clean up his mess. Now, at first, David isn't going to make it that easy. I truly believe he thinks he can have both the crown and his choice of wife. He laughs off the idea that his stammering younger brother would even think of assuming the throne. And this movie doesn't go into all the behind the scenes discussions. So we're not sure what is happening within David's inner circle. It's a shame because inquiring minds would love to know, but this movie isn't about him. Bertie continues his sessions. Lionel mentions that Bertie doesn't seem to stammer when he's angry, particularly when he's using swear words. So Lionel urges this prim and proper Duke of York to unleash a barrage of cuss words. And we're here for it. This turns out to be the funniest scene in the entire movie. And obviously the reason it received an R rating. For your listening pleasure, here is the exact quote. And you may want to pause right here to have the kids leave the room. Fuck, 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 fucking fuck, 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 and bugger. Bugger, bugger, buggity fuck. Fuck arse, balls, balls, fuckity shit. Willy, shit, and fuck. And tits. End quote. Let it out, Bertie. Let it out. Of course, it's so much better when Colin Firth does it, but you get the idea. A short while later, Bertie tells Lionel that his brother is in love with a woman he can't possibly marry, and there's about to be a serious crisis in England. Remember, this is the 1930s, when everyone in the nation stood steadfastly behind their monarchs, and the expectations were that the royal family live an impeccable and spotless life. For centuries, there had been strict rules about who a king or queen could marry. It was all about the succession. And no one would have risked tarnishing the crown by thinking they could actually marry for love. It's possible they could have accepted the fact that Wallace was a commoner if she hadn't been a divorcee. Lionel expresses that he thinks Bertie would be a great king. And maybe that's what fate has in store for him. But Bertie is a traditionalist. He knows it's his duty to support his brother, and any conversation to the contrary could be considered treason. He absolutely loses his mind and tees off on Lionel. All of the things that Bertie has kept inside his head, Lionel is saying out loud, and it's scaring the shit out of him. Bertie slings a few insults at him below the belt stuff that he knows will hit Lionel where it hurts, and he storms off. He vows to never, ever see Lionel again. Bertie is seen meeting with the prime minister who admits he has many reservations about David being the king. His beef, of course, is with Wallace. The boys over at Scotland Yard have been doing some digging and uncovered some unsavory tidbits. 
she appears to get around a bit, which is her prerogative, by the way, she's a consenting adult. But if she really was receiving gifts, and I mean a lot of gifts, from Hitler's ambassador, Count von Ribbentrop, well, that's a different story altogether. He politely notifies Bertie that if David refuses to listen to the advice of his government, then his government will resign. This is a deal breaker, and it leads us to the ultimate question. Does a king do what he wants, or does a king do what his people need him to do? Bertie finally sees the writing on the wall when he meets with Winston Churchill, who was a member of parliament and a trusted military advisor at the time. Churchill tells him that Parliament does not support David's marriage. But there's more. They have found David to be careless with state papers. He lacks commitment and resolve. And there are those who worry about where he will stand when war comes with Germany. Some have reason to believe that David would be sympathetic, perhaps even taking the side of Hitler. He tells Bertie that England needs a king they can all stand behind, united as one. And that king isn't David. The whole conversation is too much for Bertie. He becomes so perplexed and anxiety-ridden that he can't cobble together two words. How was he supposed to be king, especially during a time of war, when he can barely utter a single sentence? The time comes for David to give up the throne. He's absolutely insistent that he must marry Wallace. His mind is made up, and he's sorry for what he's doing to Bertie, but there's no going back. He gives his exit speech and signs the paperwork, and hands the throne to his brother. It is with very little fanfare that Bertie is officially crowned King George VI. Bertie is overwhelmed. He's filled with self-doubt and worry. His only other job has been as a naval officer, and now he's faced with the demands of running the country. He knows how far out of his depth he really is. He's also dealing with the fact that most kings ascend to the throne because the previous person died. And in this case, his brother is still very much alive and growing in popularity since a number of citizens have sympathy for his heartbreaking love story. So Bertie finally swallows his pride and he goes to apologize to Lionel. His stammer has returned. His fear has caused a severe regression and he's sure he can't manage to be king if he does not have his friend's help. It is during the preparations for the king's coronation that the Archbishop of Canterbury starts asking questions. He finds it odd that Lionel is going everywhere with the king, and the two men seem quite friendly. He had no idea that Bertie was taking elocution lessons. It doesn't take more than a cursory check to find out that Lionel Logue has no formal medical training, no diploma, and no certifications. And the king feels betrayed. Lionel reminds him that he never referred to himself as a doctor, In fact, he insisted that Bertie call him Lionel. He never gave any pretense that he was a medical doctor and never made any indication that he'd been formally trained. He'd only told Bertie stories, true stories, of the other people he had helped. And although Bertie is pissed at him, he knows deep down how much Lionel has helped him, and he needs him in his life. The Archbishop tries to fire Lionel Logue and bring in an English doctor with impeccable credentials, but Bertie isn't having it. In 1939, England declares war on Nazi Germany. Lionel is summoned to Buckingham Palace to prepare the king for his speech. This one is a humdinger, the speech of all speeches. 
Bertie and Lionel step into the broadcast room and it's like Lionel is conducting a symphony, silently guiding Bertie through every line of the text. And it is a smashing success. Lionel Logue was present at all of King George's speeches throughout the war, and the two remained good friends until the king's death from lung cancer in 1952, at which time his eldest daughter, Elizabeth, was named the Queen of England. Question one, does the king's speech stand the test of time? Yes. Now, I admit, I'm a bit of a monarchy nerd, but many of the issues in this movie are issues we still hear about today, especially since this weekend they have coronated the first king to sit on the throne since Bertie. I think the most interesting thing is that in the 1930s, they forced David to abdicate the throne rather than accept a divorced woman as the queen consort. Attitudes have clearly changed over time, and people are far more accepting of Charles and Camilla, who is also a divorced woman. Another culture shift, just to make a quick mention of, there was a law for centuries that declared any sons would precede daughters in the line of succession. This was changed recently, 10 years ago, in fact, for the benefit of Prince William's children. So basically, he has three kids, George, Charlotte, and Louis. And under the old laws regarding the line of succession, Louis would have gotten the throne before Charlotte. Even though he's younger, he is a boy, and he would have had priority. Parliament passed the Succession to the Crown Act in 2013, effective for any children born after 2011. So Charlotte gets to keep her place in the royal succession. Whether you are a supporter of the British monarchy or not, it's all still very fascinating to watch it on screen. The grandeur, the abundant wealth and privilege, all of the pomp and circumstance. It's just like watching a fancy fairy tale on repeat. It's not often we get a somewhat realistic glimpse behind the curtain. Whether it's this movie or many others, we're able to see for ourselves the less than perfect life they really live. It seems that they also have their fair share of misery and loneliness and drama. It's just probably a lot easier to cope when you have billions of dollars. Question two, is it Oscar worthy? Yes, this is an extraordinary movie. It's very well scripted and Colin Firth and Jeffrey Rush are both incredible in it. That being said, this was another year where nearly all the movies in the Best Picture category were capable of winning. The other nominees were Black Swan, The Fighter, Inception, The Kids Are All Right, 127 Hours, The Social Network, Toy Story 3, True Grit, and Winter's Bone. You guys, seriously, wow, that is an incredible collection of movies. There's also two others that probably should have been nominated, which were Blue Valentine and The Town, which I think is an excellent movie. There's just so much to offer here, something for everyone. I can't imagine how Academy voters landed on the King's speech, but again, I'm a nerd for this kind of movie, so I'm glad it won. I could easily have voted for The Social Network, The Fighter, or The Kids Are All Right, or even Inception, if for no other reason than it's probably the most wildly creative thing to come out of Hollywood in 20 years. The King's Speech won for directing and writing, as well as Colin Firth winning for Best Actor. I think this is well-deserved. It can't be easy playing a real-life person with such a debilitating speech impairment, but he did so brilliantly, and he received a ton of critical acclaim 
along with scooping up just about every award possible. Both Hugh Grant and Paul Bettany were offered the role, but turned it down. Womp womp. Question three, should you watch it? Yes, please do. This is another really strong script. It's well acted and it's very endearing. The costumes, the cars, the homes, it's all perfectly set in the 1930s time period and every detail feels just perfect. Queen Elizabeth II was sent a copy of the film before Christmas in 2010. A palace source described her reaction to the movie as being touched by the moving portrayal of her father. He died way too young, leaving his eldest daughter to rule, a job she held with dignity for 70 years. Please make the time to watch this one. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Okay, that's a wrap. This has been episode 30 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. That helps get Cinema Sunday heard by a wider audience. If you have a comment, a correction, or you just want to tell me that I have shit taste, you can email me at cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of the freemusicarchives.org, and the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio, and if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations, so please be generous. Thank you, and see you next week.